TUC Radio San Francisco Time of Useful Consciousness Lies, War and Empire Michael Parenti is one of the nation's leading progressive political analysts. He's a prolific author and an engaging speaker. After receiving his PhD in political science from Yale, he has taught at colleges and universities in the U.S. and abroad. In this 2007 talk for Antioch College in Seattle, Parenti speaks about how to think about empire. He raises the intriguing question of how we arrive at a valid analysis of our social reality, given that so many lies are told to confuse us. Here's Michael Parenti. I want to begin with some questions. How do we perceive social reality? I thought I'd start with some small questions here. <laughs> what is objectivity? And in this age of empire, how do we arrive at the truth and still retain our sanity? These are some of the questions that inform this present inquiry. The usual criticism made about objectivity is that it doesn't exist. Um... We're not just passive receptors sponging up images and information. Perception, as you know, involves selecting and omitting, organizing data into comprehensive forms. In other words, the act of perceiving something is itself an act of editing, which introduces certain kinds of distortions. There's that classical Walter Lippmann a statement that he made 80 years ago, we don't see things and then define them, we define them first and then see them. But the mental selectors we use to organize our perceptions are not mostly of our own creation. Much of our personal perception is really not all that personal. Rather, it's shaped by a variety of things outside of ourselves such as the dominant ideology, conventional social values, one's position in the social structure, the available flow of information and disinformation, the potential benefits and losses that are attached to such perceptions. There's Upton Sinclair's favorite, uh, famous quotation where he said, it's very difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. <laughs> Today, an analogous concept might be the dominant paradigm. The dominant paradigm means the mainstream ideology. And you see bumper stickers that say, subvert the dominant paradigm. And the dominant paradigm is based on a unanimity of, of bias. And that unanimity of bias is what passes for objectivity in mainstream discourse. Well, if objectivity is really little more than conformity of bias, then isn't one paradigm about as reliable or unreliable as another? Is all truth then nothing more than opinion or belief? If not, what makes a dissident, heterodox analysis better than an orthodox or mainstream one. 
or do we lapse into a relativism which is, you know, who's to say, you got your opinion, I got my opinion? Well, I would argue that, in fact, it, that's not where we're left. You can say that the dissenting opinion, the radical view, the views that are outside the mainstream, the views that are outside this uh, unanimity of bias, are generally, not always, but generally, are more reliable than the dominant view because they're more regularly challenged and tested against evidence. They don't get a free float down the mainstream. They're not supported by the unanimity of bias that passes for objectivity. Regarding orthodoxy, the most insidious oppressions are those that so insinuate themselves into the fabric of our lives and into the recesses of our minds that we don't even realize they're acting upon us. In the face of this, the heterodox view, the dissenting view, is not just another opinion among many. It has a special task to contest the prevailing orthodoxy, to broaden the boundaries of debate, to wake people up, to unearth suppressed data. The function of orthodox opinion is just the opposite, to keep the parameters of discourse as narrow as possible. Listen to a presidential press conference, for instance. To dismiss evidence that ill-fits the dominant paradigm. So all opinions are not of the same value. It depends on what they're being used for, what interests they serve. We've all observed that if something doesn't fit what people believe, they marshal up their reserved defenses and arguments, and sometimes very bitterly and very unyieldingly and unreceptively. It's called visiting relatives, right? <laughs> okay, how many have had this experience? You bring somebody up, no, not that experience, a new one. I mean, <laughs> hands eagerly shoot up into the air. I'm going to. I'm going to. Just, no, I'm going to describe for you um, an example like this. You meet someone who has a firm belief about something, and you give that person contradictory data. You say, "But there's this, this, this," and they say, "Oh, well, in that case, given that contradictory evidence and that, uh, I, I now sur surrender my beliefs and I embrace yours." <laughs> now raise your hand if that's happened to you. <laughs> Okay, your laughter is, is the answer to my question. I taught, uh, years ago, I guess it was about in the 80s, I taught at Cornell University for a year as a visiting professor, and I was teaching a communications class of upperclassmen, juniors and seniors, and somewhere about a third through the course, a couple of them complained and said, we're getting only one viewpoint in this class. And I said, well, no, we've got on the syllabus, we've got this reading and this reading, and I don't agree with this reading, and, and we discuss other questions. I said, but you know, you're right. And it was, of course, on the media. The perspective is very critical of the existing media that you have here. You're right. You're getting that point of view. It's true. It was a class of about 50 students. So I said, how many of you have had other social science courses such as sociology, political science, economics, social psychology, anthropology. 
history, whatever, communications courses. And every hand went up. Everybody had at least three or four social science courses. I said, and how many of you in all those other courses got this point of view? Not a single hand went up. A measure of the ideological pluralism and diversity of Cornell University. And then I said, and how many of you in those other courses complained that you were getting only one point of view? In all those other courses that you took, again, not a hand went up. I said, so you're not complaining that you're getting only one point of view. You're complaining that for the first time you're getting a second point of view and you can't tolerate it. Now, if people cannot challenge the validity of the evidence you present, they have fallback positions. I remember the Moscow intellectuals back when there was a Soviet Union, back in the 1980s. There was a very interesting article written of all places in the National Review, a conservative right-wing magazine, where the author described the Moscow intellectuals as loving Ronald Reagan, Marlboro cigarettes, and the Confederacy during the Civil War. And that, I thought, was a very accurate uh, description given the, the ones I met when I, when I was there, they hated socialism. A friend of mine, she had the same experience. One guy said to her, he said, the poorest people in your country live better than I do. And here's a guy who had gone to Moscow University. He spoke fluent English. He had a small but comfortable apartment. He had a wall full with books. He never missed a meal in his life, but he was convinced that the poorest in your country, in America, America. And when I used to hear them talk, their eyes would begin to sparkle. America, America. Uh, um, and, um, and she said, well, that's not true. We have people in our country who sleep in doorways and pick through garbage cans and such. And, uh, and you know what they said to her? They said, that's all right. You don't have to lie to us anymore. And she said, no, really. And she cited some statistics. What's the fallback, the first fallback position? Where did you get those figures from? She said, from the federal government, Bureau of Labor Statistics, U.S. Census Bureau. It's public knowledge. So their second fallback position said, oh, those are just the blacks. The blacks, they're, they're lazy and stupid, and so, yeah, they're poor, yeah. That's a, that's a rhetorical fallback position. I've given that a technical term, racism. I call that racism. <laughs> so it so happened that she had a copy of Mother Jones in her, with her, and there was a special photo feature in that issue of the poor of Appalachia. She said, look, Appalachia, they're all white, you know. And they looked at the pictures, and they had another fallback position, which was what? Oh, so there were a few white people who were poor out in the country, and so that's so unusual they made a whole article with photographs about them. You see? So beliefs are frighteningly impervious to evidence sometimes. The Soviet intellectuals believed, they believed America was a capitalist paradise. A year later... I headed a delegation to the Soviet Union uh, made up of economists and political scientists. And I remember our guide in Moscow, she said, again, she was a woman about late 40s, early 50s. She said, there is no prostitution in my country. 
You see, now we're, we're trying to explore the nature of belief here. How do people have belief? And I said to her, I said, you know, there may not be any prostitution in your country, but there sure is a hell of a lot of it in our hotel right here downstairs. <laughs> and you know what she said without, without missing a beat? She said, yes, well, I want you to know all those girls have full-time jobs during the day. <laughs> Talk about fallback position. <laughs> if you're engaged in political discourse and political struggle, as I am all the time, in political communication, you realize that you're not doing politics. You're doing religion. It's religion you're dealing with because you're dealing with belief. It's a rough deal. I mean, it's with good reason that we use words like political dogma and sectarian. These are religious terms, you know. As to what then is truth, we perhaps can back into that question the way we, we can answer it by backing into it by saying that we know truth exists because we know liars exist. We may not always know when our leaders are lying to us, but after a while we catch on. Um, you know the you know the saying uh, you can't fool all the people all the time, but if you do it once, it's good for four years, right? <laughs> and what if four years it was, and then another four years we're in it still? What's often missing from public discourse and mainstream political study is the political economic content of something, of the issue. The media are amazing. They can tell you about this, and there were people there, and others were... But they don't tell you, what's the, what's the issue? What is the conflict about? What's the substance of it? Why are all these things going on? What's the goal? You can read American government textbooks of the standard mainstream variety, and you'll read that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is a voice of the business community. These textbooks will often have a section called Public Interest Groups, and you have the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And just as the AFL-CIO is for labor, it's always balanced in these books, always balanced. What you usually don't get is the politico-economic content of this politico-economic organization known as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. You don't hear, you don't read that for almost a century the chamber opposed laws that legalized labor unions. It opposed collective bargaining. It opposed, it was against the abolition of child labor. It was against fair labor practices. It was against minimum wage increases. It was against legal protections for workers as under the NLRB. It was against regulations to protect the economy. You don't hear that. How can they talk about the Chamber of Commerce without, without ever really saying what it does? I'm reminded of something C. Wright Mills said years ago, that in the face of such informational vapidity... Is there such a word as vapidity? Vapor? Vapidity? Did I just make that up? What? There is now. Such informational vapidity and cover-up, simple facts can have the import of radical acts. Now, this slighting of content 
This avoiding political economic content is a common means of maintaining the dominant paradigm. Never go too far into social reality. Never cross any lines beyond uh, uh, permissible opinion. I remember uh, one time in the American Political Science Association, we were having this big uh, debate of the of the decade or something, it was Philip Green and I against Nelson Polsby and Aaron Woldovsky of University of California Political Science, uh, Berkeley. And I remember at one point turning to Woldovsky and saying, how can you teach and write about the American presidency for 35 years without ever once mentioning capitalism? Well, the look on his face, uh, he startled like, uh, like, you know, like I was Donald Duck or something. <laughs> he just was looking. And it, was, I, it occurred to me that this was the first time in those 35 years he had ever been asked that question. So the absence of political economic content is a chronic thing. It's evident in the discussion about empire also. When I was writing that book, The Assassination of Julius Caesar, I have a section on empire in that, but the book is not, is not mostly about imperialism or empire or conquest. It's about the internal politics of the Roman Republic. But uh, when I was writing that book, I was reading a lot about empire, and I discovered something very, very interesting, that most of the literature on empire is kind of favorable toward empire. It's kind of admiring of empire. That, you know, empires are seen as grand accomplishments, as bringing stability uh, where there had been chaos, uh, bringing peace and dominion among these uh, squabbling tribes, you know. You see that in those movies, too, you know. The greatness of Rome. You must remember Rome. And we were like, we're all supposed to be sitting there going, Rome, oh, whoa. And those are my ancestors, you know. Um, we even give empires peace names. Pax Romana, Pax Britannica. Empires are also often seen as, as innocent, unintentional accretions. They arise stochastically. Stochasticism, write it down, stochasticism is the theory that things happen by chance or random, that you can't see consistent patterns in this way. You know, just stuff happens. That's the way it is. I remember in my uh, salad days uh, hearing that the British Empire was put together in a fit of absent-mindedness. That, was a, that used to be a phrase. used to hear that. Our teachers say that to me. More recently, how about 2003, The Economist, an eminent conservative British publication, very eminent as you know, wrote the following in an unsigned editorial about, oh, in, in, um, in August 2003, about four months after the invasion of Iraq by U.S. forces, and this unsigned article was addressing that invasion, and it began like this. Empires are born in funny ways, and sometimes via the law of unintended, unintended consequences by accident. <laughs> Empires are born by accident. There it is, accident. Well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Empires are not innocent, absent-minded, accidental, unintentional accretions. 
they are given force by purpose-driven rulers who consciously have to mobilize vast amounts of men and materials to conquer and plunder far-off places. I mean, the British just didn't just happen to find themselves in India, you know. Oh, look, fancy this. We were thought we were going to go vacation in Greece, and we took a turn, and, well, we're here now. We might as well plunder the place and rip it all to pieces and get rich off it. But the term empire was never applied to the United States. When I was a kid... In class, there was a map, I remember, of the United States, and then there were these inserts on the sides. Puerto Rico, Alaska, Hawaii weren't yet states. The Philippines, yes, the Philippines. Was st- and I remember we said to the teacher, are those our colonies? And the teacher, Miss Myers, she said, America does not have colonies. Those are our territories. <laughs> What's in a word, hey? The power of labeling. So you didn't say, you didn't talk about... When I wrote my book, Against Empire, in 1995, there were a few people who commented, uh, Empire, come on, uh, Parenti, aren't you going over the top here? Talking about critique of U.S. interventionism, it's one thing. That's a bit much. The U.S. doesn't pursue empires. It propagates democracy, as we all know. But, you know, by 2000, 2001, suddenly all these books started coming out with the title of empire in them. The Twilight of Empire, The Sorrows of Empire, The Follies of Empire, Empire at the Crossroads, Empire Gonna Get Your Mama. You know, I mean, every every kind of... Even conservatives started using the word. The conservative pundits who overpopulate the uh, Sunday talk shows and all these panel shows, uh, opinion panel shows, they were all starting to say things like, we're an empire, and we've got to accept the fact we're an empire, and we've got to start acting like an empire. It's time we started acting, uh, and we've got to take on the responsibilities. It's as if... Since we have this power, we have the entitlement. That power gives you moral, some kind of moral entitlement to go out there and whack other countries if you want. Well, I started asking myself, how is it? How is it that so many people now suddenly feel free to talk about empire when they mean U.S. empire, not the wicked Soviet Empire, or the British Empire, or the Mongol, or Persian Empires. No, no, U.S. Empire. How How is it they're saying this? What am I missing? And I realized it wasn't something that I was missing. It's something that they were missing. That is, I realized that the word had been divested of its full meaning. Empire seems to mean, when most of these people write about it, It means simply dominion and power. What is missing from the public discourse is the process of empire and, even more important, the political economic content. For while we say a lot about this word, everybody's using this word now, empire, there's another word that's missing. There's another word that's missing that's very closely related to empire and nobody ever uses it except a few of us. And that other word is imperialism. 
Now, isn't that fascinating? How can you talk about empire without ever mentioning imperialism? Because imperialism is the process of empire. Empires do imperialism. That's what they do. They do imperialism. It's like going to a medical conference of pulmonary specialists and they're all talking about our lungs and never once mentioning breathing. You know, so you've got to say, what is missing from this picture? Imperialism is not only the process, it's the political economic content. Imperialism is when the ruling interests of one country expropriate the land, the labor, the natural resources, and the capital, and the markets of another country. Imperialism means plunder and tribute. Empires are not just all about power. It's not power for power's sake. Nobody goes out and just goes and does power. Oh, let's go to Africa and conquer chunks of Africa because then we'll feel more powerful. You know, you go to Africa because there's something there that you want. It's one of the richest places in the world. That's where you got, I mean, tin, copper, diamonds, gold, hemp, uh, timber, human beings, slaves, all the stuff that enriches you. That's what King Leopold, he didn't have any grudge about the people in the Congo. He didn't care one way or another about who they were, where they were, whether they lived or died. He just wanted them and worked them in those mines so that he could get richer and richer and richer. So it's not power for power's sake. It's power to get your wealth and using your wealth to increase your power and using your power to maximize and secure your wealth. That's what it's about. That's what the guys who are in the White House today are doing. That was part one of an hour-long talk by Michael Poenti. He spoke on May 12, 2007, in Seattle, Washington, on lies, war, and empire. In part one of this talk, Poenti spoke about lies, dissent, and how we arrive at the truth of our situation and still retain our sanity. He ended his talk in part one by defining the U.S. empire and introduced the often censored word imperialism, imperialism as the process of empire. In this second half of his talk, Parenti raises the question whether the Iraq war was not a failure but a success for at least some parts of the empire and why. Michael Parenti. Empires are enormously profitable, mostly for the ruling and investing class of the imperial country. Empires are enormously costly for the common populace, both of the targeted country and of the imperial country itself. The empire feeds off the republic's resources. Where the hell do you think this empire comes from? It comes from the Republic. Where do they get these, where do they get the money for these 380 military bases and these bombings and killings and shootings and, and destruction? They get it from our tax dollars. The people pay the taxes and do without essentials so that the patricians can pursue their far-off plunder. The center is bled so that the perimeter can expand and expand and expand. And you see that happening. We live in a country that has a runaway defense budget just this past year, $487 billion. That's just the basic 
Pentagon defense budget. It doesn't count another $124 billion for Iraq, another 30 or $40 billion for Afghanistan. What they do in the world, U.S. rulers, they do on purpose. They know what they're doing. Just because they mislead you and confuse you or us doesn't mean that they are necessarily confused. They may say all sorts of misleading things. I wrote an article, and you can uh, it's not on my website, but Common Dreams has it posted. It's called Mystery, How Wealth Creates Poverty in the World. And I pointed out that as U.S. investment has increased over the last half century dramatically in the third world, and IMF and World Bank loans have increased in the third world, and U.S. aid to the third world has increased. While all of this has gone on for half a century, during that half a century, poverty has increased. Today, the number of people living in poverty is growing at a faster rate than the world's population. So as wealth accumulates, poverty spreads because there's a dynamic interrelation between the two. And I said, so here's the mystery. Why is that a mystery? It's such a conundrum. How do we figure this out? Well, there's no mystery, really. Unless you assume that these investors and these aid people and these bankers manipulating this debt are doing all this to help the people in these countries, if you drop that assumption and you say they're doing it to help themselves, then it's a perfectly rational system. They're making tremendous amounts of money. These investments aren't designed to uplift the people, to build up their domestic industries, to give them a viable economy, to make their food supply secure and those things. These investments are there to get them off the land, to take the wealth out of them, to reduce their, the price of their labor down to shantytown starvation levels. And so is the aid. The aid, the aid you, all these countries have to buy it from U.S., and so with the debt, the loans, the loans are sent in and then they're trapped in the loan and then, then they're hit with more money sent to them and they're forced to do SAPs, it's called SAPs, Structural Adjustment Programs, which means cut back on all your own domestic subsidies and, and development and all that. So, so, so these programs are designed to impoverish these people and they've been very successful. And the liberal critic comes along and says, this isn't working. Because he's smarter. He's so, so, so much smarter than all these people who have been doing this all this while. No, he isn't. He's the dumbest one in the room. He always thinks, he always thinks that American foreign policy is so stupid and so confused and our dealings with these countries are, are on, off on a wrong leg and all that. Why? Well, Larry McGuire writes to me, he says, I loved your article, and it answered the question that I posed in mine. He, he was trying to understand international finance and what happened in Argentina. And he read three liberal writers. He read Mark Cooper of The Nation, Mark Cooper, who never, who never met a U.S. war he didn't love and support, Mark Weisbrot and Paul Krugman of the New York Times. All of them, all three of them writing about Argentina. And McGuire, with feigned innocence, he notes that all three said that Argentina had been a gold mine for international investors and big speculators, a source of huge profits. 
You remember when Argentina crashed, when the whole economy went into a burnout. The IMF forced Argentina to slash its protective tariffs, privatize its state enterprises, and transfer huge sums from Argentine taxpayers to the pockets of the big money people and the IMF. McGuire, he notes that Cooper, Weisbrot, and Krugman condemned the crisis in Argentina, that these three say that the IMF, and these are various quotes, created a failed model, the program was an error, a catastrophic failure, a failed experiment, a disaster. But McGuire says, how so? Agreed it was a disaster for the Argentinians uh, and for Argentina. But the free market IMF policies made Wall Street cheer, as Krugman himself said, and it wreaked billions for investors. In other words, the policy worked very well for a small group of very wealthy people. Isn't that what the policy was supposed to do, McGuire asks? The IMF has pursued these same policies in many other countries. If an institution does the same thing over and over again with profitable results, why is it a failure? Because it brought hardship to the people of these countries? What's that got to do with getting rich? As Maguire says, I quote him, I would call it a well-crafted policy that must work for the people implementing that policy. Otherwise, why would they continue doing it? So why do Cooper, Weisbrot, and Krugman call it a failure? I'm going to tell you why right now. This is why you paid your ten bucks. Now's the moment <laughs> you're going to hear the real lowdown. What was the question again? <laughs> why do they call it a failure? They call it a failure because they want to stay within the dominant paradigm. They prefer to make a liberal complaint rather than a radical analysis. They assume a community of interest between the plutocratic investors and the working people of the recipient countries when in fact there is no community of interest between those two. These three have no class analysis of the IMF. They assume that the rich plunderers who make billions off the IMF are primarily interested in helping others rather than in helping themselves. They avoid all mention of that old Roman uh, question, cui bono, that's Latin. It means what? Who, benefits. who benefits, that's right. Who's getting it? Who's benefit? This is being done because somebody is benefiting it in most cases. Now, the same for the war in Iraq. That the reasons given by the administration to justify that war, weapons of mass destruction, al-Qaeda links to uh, Hussein, that, that these reasons have proven false, doesn't mean that the policy is imbecilic. As I said to you already, because our rulers try to mislead us and confuse us, doesn't mean that they themselves are confused. The war in Iraq Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, the war in Iraq is not a stupid blunder. It's not a well-intentioned undertaking that went wrong. Iraq has been very good for a number of interests. 
It served notice to the Middle East and the world that countries that chart an independent, self-defining, self-developing course will be destroyed. That's just what Cheney said yesterday on that aircraft carrier about Iran, that it might try to emerge as a regional power, and we've got to make sure that doesn't happen. There are really very disturbing things about Iran. You know, you have a new literacy rate of up to 80%. The social wage is being built up. They're recycling oil profits right back into the economy in some cases. Many, many things wrong with Iran, especially with the condition of women. I'm not trying to say that's a society we should aspire for. But what bothers them is that here's a country that's charting an independent course. It's not putting itself under the free market global system. And that's what was wrong with Iraq. Saddam Hussein, and here's something, if you want to look at amnesia in the media, Saddam Hussein was Washington's poster boy years ago. The Iraqi people had a revolution in 1958 and they kicked out the British and American oil companies and they built a, a democratic country. When Every time they talk about we've got to go in there and teach the Iraqis democracy, there's a lie. There's the lie of omission. They forget that they had a democracy. They had a constitutional government, a prime minister. Saddam Hussein's first gig with the CIA was to shoot the prime minister, which he did. He didn't kill him. He just wounded him and the CIA got him out and brought him to Syria. He he later on worked his way in and with his death squads he killed or he drove into exile or he drove underground every constitutionalist every progressive every reformer every democrat every communist in the country who had formed this coalition he even then killed and slaughtered and murdered the whole left wing of his own Baathist party this is the part they never tell you about Saddam Hussein and when he was doing that he was Washington's poster boy. They loved him. They gave him aid. They gave him a good chunk of the oil market. They gave him, uh, they signed him on Iran to go fight, do a proxy war for them against Iran. He was everything. But then he started committing economic nationalism. He kept the economy state-owned. He trained cadres of engineers. He did not turn Iraq into a free market client state. He did not open it up to global international investment. He did not say, come on in, boys, it's all yours. The land, the labor, the, the resources, the oil, everything, it's all yours. Just give me and my brother uh, Jose or, or Abdul, whatever part of the country it is, the, the client, client leader will say, just give me and my brother Pierre a uh, uh, payoff and all that, and we'll take care and keep the people in line for you. He didn't do that. He was, he was a, a right-winger conservative, but he did keep a lot of these social programs anyway. That didn't fit very well. Iraq was the example he was, it was a bad example for the Middle East. It was the example, the danger of a good example, we, we, we call it that. If every country in the Middle East starts doing that, or in the world, what happens to the empire, what happens to our free market global system of earning billions and billions and billions of dollars off the sweat, labor, and land and resources of these people. So that was accomplished. You see, this war did accomplish something. It took an independent, self-defining, self-developing country and destroyed it. It may making the world that much safer for the free market global empire.
If you want to know what kind of empire the U.S. has, it's a free market empire. Iraq was good for other people. A hundred companies made billions in government contracts. Most of them are getting out now because the situation is becoming so untenable. 113 billion barrels of quality crude. At, at today's prices, we're talking about six or seven trillion dollars. The biggest resource grab in history. Saddam was granting concessions to Russia, China, Brazil, Italy, Malaysia, France. All those concessions are, no longer exist. They're gone. It's the U.S. and Great Britain this last March, the accords that worked out. If and when they want to get all that, they get all that oil out. A lot of it is also to keep the oil off the market to keep the oil prices up. And that was the fight, the first Gulf War with Daddy Bush, that, that's what the whole fight was. That Saddam wanted a larger oil quota um, and he wasn't getting it. And, and, and if he did, that would bring oil prices down. That's not my conspiracy theory. That's not my lefty conspiracy theory. That was right in the goddamn New York Times business page. It just said, uh, uh, Iraqi oil might threaten price, price floors, blah, blah, blah. Oil concessions were taken away from these other countries. Okay. The Iraq War also allowed the U.S. to impose, the White House to impose record increases in the defense budget by 30, 40 percent, depending on how you calculate that defense budget. Iraq had switched from dollars to euros as its reserve currency, that is the currency that any other country will take. It's your backup currency. Not anymore. That was a danger. That was a real danger to, to U.S. creditors and speculators and, and international dollar finance, which um, it's back on the dollar. One of the first things that happened is Iraq has switched back from euros to dollars. Iraq supported Palestinian liberation. Not anymore. Um, Iraq had an entirely state-owned economy. Not anymore. Everything has been privatized or destroyed one way or the other. Iraq was prosperous and of some influence in the Middle East. Not anymore. Iraq today is a total basket case. It's a disaster. It's worse than Haiti. It may never recover, not for the next foreseeable one or two or three generations. I don't know. It's just terrible what's happened. Now, this is not U.S. ignorance or confusion at work. This is not good intentions gone awry. It is deliberate, conscious reactionism and imperialism. Bush and Cheney knew what they wanted to do, and they have done it for the most part. It's true they did miscalculate. It's true they thought the uh, insurgency would be minor, that people would, uh, they may have even convinced themselves that people were going to throw flowers out and greet them and all that. It's true they got a politically costly war that they didn't expect to have. But that, that doesn't mean they didn't accomplish anything. They've accomplished quite a bit from their perspective. And the empire can lose the war that is go home after it's destroyed the country. That's what happened in Vietnam. I don't think they lost the war in Vietnam. Vietnam never really recovered. It now has to take a capital road. Uh, this brings us to another question about how to think about how we think. Do those who put forth the lies of empire believe what they tell us? 
sometimes yes, sometimes no. That an opinion serves my self-interest doesn't mean that I embrace it hypocritically. It it might mean because it so well serves my self-interest that what? I embrace it all the more eagerly and sincerely. I believe it. It seems very persuasive for the very fact that it's so serviceable. So do they, do these people in the White House, do they believe in the dominant paradigm? They sure do. It defines their world for them. It assures them of their self-worth. They believe, along with one of their progenitors from two centuries ago, Alexander Hamilton, that the country should be run by the rich and the well-born. And it should be run for the rich and the well-born. They completely believe they are deserving of their station in life. It's called Yale, Harvard, Princeton. As has been said, George Bush Sr. was born on third base and he grew up thinking he had hit a triple. They believe that America should lead the world and that they should lead America. And they believe the poor are the authors of their own poverty. Just listen to Barbara Bush when she holds forth on that. And the working class are a troublesome lot who need to be reined in along with the middle class, both of whom have to ratchet down their standard of living and their level of expectations a lot more so that the people at the top can get still richer. See, there's only one thing that ruling classes have ever wanted throughout all of history, and that's everything. They want all the best lands, all the resources, all the grains, all the herds, all the gold, the silver, everything. They want all the comforts and protections of civil life and all the amenities while having to pay none of the costs. They want everything. They want you to have all the burdens, and they want all the privileges. Now, do they believe the propaganda they put out in support of specific policies? Well, sometimes they do deliberately fabricate and seem to be aware of it. You know it when you catch them in inconsistencies, when they say one thing one day, another thing the next day. I mean, Alberto Gonzalez, you know, and he said, I didn't know about it. Oh, yeah, I knew about it. Oh, yeah, this. Well, it wasn't that much. Well, it was that. Well, I don't know. You know, though truth is not even a consideration. It's more like the advertising world. Advertisers don't strive to create truths. They strive to create a sale. The prime consideration is selling a product, not the truth. The question you ask is, will it sell? That's the truth. If it sells, then it's, quote, true, in heavy quote marks. Is the message effective? Is it getting across? If it works then it's true, and we go with it. If it doesn't, then it's discarded. The approach is purely instrumental. Truth is a purely instrumental thing. Does it serve our ends or not? Let me finish by saying there is room for hope, brothers and sisters. <laughs> there is room for hope. There's some, there sometimes are limits to how well officialdom and the corporate press can finesse reality. Sometimes reality keeps getting in the way. So keep in mind one thing, that indoctrination into the dominant paradigm does not operate with perfect effect. If it worked with perfect effect, you would not be able to understand what I was saying now. I would not be able to say what I'm saying now. This would be a Republican National Committee meeting or something. (laughs) 
In the face of all monopolistic ideological manipulation, people still develop a skepticism toward the official ideology. Reality is a problem for the ruling class. Remember that. Reality is a problem for them. Reality is not a problem for us. They are the ones who have to finesse reality and misrepresent reality. Reality is radical. Just remember that. When, when we say that there's terrible environmental devastation, that's not something we are conjuring up out of our radical ideology. That's reality, you see. When we say poverty is growing faster than the world's population, that's reality. That's not some argument we're making, you see. When we're saying that wages are flat and the top fraction of 1% is making more money than they ever did before and they've got these immense multi-billion dollar tax cuts, that's not something we, we imagined. That's reality. And they have got to deal and explain that. When we say that Social Security has been the most successful, successful human service program that this country's ever produced the most successful anti-poverty program, as inadequate and insufficient as it is, and it's a three-pronged program, remember, it's not just pensions, it's not just pensions, it's also disability insurance, and it's also survivor's insurance. That's reality. So when reality is radical, there's a limit to how many lies people can swallow about the reality that they're experiencing. All social institutions of capitalist society have a dichotomous tension within them. They must sustain the few and advance the interests of the few while appearing to serve the many. Along with ruling class coercion, we have mass resistance and skepticism. Along with institutional stability, we have popular ferment and popular innovation and resistance at times. Don't you ever think for one moment, that they don't care what you think. They don't care what you think. Oh man, that, that's, the, that's the only thing about you that they care about, what you think. That's what they're doing. Cheney's trip to that aircraft carrier and all that stuff. Every day, every day they're putting on a show. They're waging their propaganda war. Not in Iraq, not in Latin America. They're too... But the place they target most with all their propaganda, most of the things they do are directed to the American public, because the empire feeds off that republic. Uh, so they lie and they conjure false issues to distract or flatter or frighten the people or in some other way to win over and immobilize the public. Or sometimes when they have no choice, they have to actually make real concessions to democratic demands. Years ago, the American philosopher William James observed how custom and culture can operate as a sedative, while novelty and dissidence are rejected as an irritant. Yet I would argue that after a while, sedatives can become suffocating and irritants can enliven. People sometimes hunger for the discomforting perspective that gives them a more meaningful explanation. By being aware of this, we have a better chance of moving against the tide, a better chance of resisting the deadening hand of fundamentalist free market plutocracy, a better chance of exposing the dominant paradigm for the sinister, suffocating, dirty little box that it is. Thank you. 
brothers and sisters. <clears throat> you heard a talk on lies, war, and empire by Michael Parenti. He spoke in Seattle, Washington, on May 12, 2007. Parenti grew up in a working-class neighborhood in New York City, went to Yale, and became an internationally known award-winning author and lecturer and one of the nation's leading progressive political analysts. He is the author of 20 books. The most recent are Contrary Notions, the eighth edition of his classic Democracy for the Few, Superpatriotism, and The Assassination of Julius Caesar. Thanks to Mike McCormick for the film and audio recording of this event. Mike is the host of Mind Over Matters on KEXP Radio, Seattle. Visit TUC Radio's website at www.tucradio.org. That's tucradio.org for more information and a link to Michael Parenti's website. Please find a pen to write down a phone number to call to find out how to order or download the talk by Michael Parenti on Lies, War, and Empire. TUC Radio is free to all radio stations. Your order of a CD or film on DVD or your donation is the only support and is essential in keeping TUC Radio on the air. You can find a free download or CD of the 60-minute version of this talk on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. For a copy of the 90-minute film on DVD, place your order on the website or call toll-free anytime at 877-TUC-TAPE. The toll-free phone number 877-TUC-TAPE translates into 1-877-882-8273. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. Give us a call.